Lord, that was a delight to see Paul back there tonight. I wasn't sure if he was going to make it or not, and we thank you for that. We, we, uh, we all have so much to be grateful for. We really got to watch ourselves and our attitudes because it's, it's easy to, uh, to start looking around and, and to start feeling pressure and to start feeling stress and, and to uh, start complaining. But you have been so gracious to us and we have been recipients of your grace and your mercy. And I think of what Jeremiah had to say in Lamentations, that your mercies are new every morning. Uh, we've had grace today and we've had grace yesterday. But in the morning when we get up, we're going to need a brand new supply, Lord. And you just keep sending it our way. It, it's, it's like Niagara Falls. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It doesn't stop. And we count on that. And we want to be extremely uh, careful that we never take that for granted. Different guys are dealing with different issues here tonight. And we, we pray for the guys that are under tremendous stress, under tremendous pressure. Maybe we just interacted with a guy in that position and uh, it didn't come out because, Lord, sometimes we, we just got to keep plugging and we got to keep going and it's not a situation where we can go into detail and really say what's going on in our lives. But there are some guys in here that are under the pile. And we're reminded that in Psalm 37, you say that you're near to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. So for the guys that are there, we pray that you would encourage them tonight. That you would let them know that your eye is upon them. That you would remind them of your faithfulness. And that as great as the pain and the stress may be and the pressure may be on their chest, that you will make a way and you will sustain them. We get concerned, Lord, as we look around at what's going on in our country. It just continues to deteriorate. And we should not be shocked by this, but we're saddened. And sometimes we, we feel, Lord, that it's, it's hopeless. That's, that's how Elijah felt at a certain point, and he got to thinking he was the only guy left, but you told him that you had 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. We thank you that you have your people, and you've got them spread out exactly where you want them, and that you're using your people. Uh, you have uh, turned us into salt. Uh, you enable us to preserve what it is that you're doing, and in, in, in ways we don't even comprehend, you're using us when we follow you, even when we don't realize it. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, we can keep following you, and we can keep living in obedience to your word. So tonight, Lord, if we've wandered, if we've drifted, put us back on course. We're, we're 
turn on the radio, we're lied to. Turn on television, they're half-truths. Thank you that when we open your book, you tell it to us the way that it is. You tell us what's real. You tell us what's true. You tell us that we have a hope. You tell us that we have a future. You tell us that your eye is upon us and you know precisely what's going on and you know precisely what you're doing. We need to hear that. So we commit this evening to you in our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I had about a 10-minute conversation this afternoon with a young man who had just been released from federal prison. Now, this is the last guy that you would ever expect to be in a federal prison. Grew up in an outstanding Christian home, solid family, went to a solid Bible-teaching church. But uh, through an unusual series of events, he was indicted... Uh, along with a number of other men in his company, a white-collar crime situation. Well, uh, his family spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to prove his innocence, and this went on for several years. It got to a point where he accepted a, a plea bargain, and part of the plea bargain was that he would not have to spend any time in jail. And... That was the deal. And then an event took place that changed everything because a new judge got involved. And as a result, he encountered an event that he never expected to encounter. Uh, he went to prison. And we spent a little bit of time talking. We, we've had several conversations. But he said something to me today that was really significant about his time in that federal prison. And, and, and here's a guy that's had all the advantages of life. Here's a guy that knows the scriptures. Here's a guy that's been raised in a Christian home. And he said to me, he said, Steve, he said, and I'm, I'm looking at it because I want to get it exactly right. He said, Steve, you don't know that God is all you need until God is all you have. And I thought, now that says it. You don't know that God is all you need until God is all that you have. In other words, it's his experience. What he was saying to me when he was put into federal prison, everything was taken away from him. Everything. And did he believe in the Lord? Sure. Did he love the Lord? Yeah. But he'd always been extremely successful. Everything had always gone his way. He'd been one of these guys that was a golden boy. And once again, if you knew this guy, this would be the last guy in the world you'd ever expect to be in a federal penitentiary. But by his own testimony, I, the story, if he could encapsulate it in a sentence as to his time in that penitentiary, you don't know that God is all you need until God is all you have. Now that's why in the Christian life, we encounter different events. That's what we've been talking about uh, here this, this fall in our study. 
Uh, we've been talking about the events in our lives that are unplanned and the events in our lives that are unforeseen. Uh, if you've been here, bear with me. I'll just try to bring us up to speed. We, we've made the point that we all have our calendars and our day timers, and we've got events that we have planned and events that we're thinking about, and Christmas is coming up, and you're either going somewhere for Christmas or they're coming to your house. Those are the events that we've got in our calendar. But for everybody in this room, there are events that are planned for your life, and there are events that are going to happen in your life that you know nothing about. Because you're not in on it, God is in on it. To us, some events are unforeseen, and to us, some events are unplanned by us, but not by God. Because God is sovereign, and because God is in absolute control of our lives, and because God is a great God, and because God is a micromanager, Nothing happens to us by chance and nothing happens to us by accident. Although at times it appears that indeed that's the way life shakes out. But, but, but God is a God that is in control of everything. And, and when you understand that and when you believe it, it puts a different perspective on the stuff that happens to us as we go through life. We're on this journey. We're on this uh, trail of life. We are, uh, we, we are on our way. Uh, he has given us physical life. That's Psalm 139. He has given us spiritual life. That's Ephesians 2. And then Ephesians 2.10 says, uh, it says, you are his workmanship. That's you and you and you and you and me. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not good works to be saved because you've already been saved. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. So God has a plan for every guy in this room. God has a purpose for every guy in this room. And one of the ways that God develops us, and one of the ways that God gets us ready for what it is that he has planned for us, is that he uses events. Events, quite frankly, that come into our lives that we have no interest in. We would not welcome these events. We would not want these events on the schedule. But God has foreordained these events and planned these events because they're part of the process to mature us and cause us to grow in faith and grow in trust in the goodness of God and the provision of God. Now, the way you grow in faith is through events that are negative, and the way you grow through events, the way you grow in faith is that God brings crisis into your life. That's why we've been looking at the Red Sea. So if you have your Bible and you say, we're still at the Red Sea, we're still at the Red Sea. We're longer at the Red Sea than those guys were. <laughs> but there's so much in here. We're still milking this baby. Exodus chapter 14. If I'm not mistaken, coins that are minted in the United States have a slogan on them. And the slogan is, in God we trust. Are they still doing that? So far. I guess the capital architect hasn't gotten there yet. They have them on the edge. But they're still there. That's good. Well, you can't have God on a flag in the capital anymore. I don't know, if you don't know about that, look it up on the internet. It's there. That's the latest ruling. But... Our coins still say, in God we trust. In 1588, a special gold medallion was stamped in England 
by the order of Queen Elizabeth. And the slogan that was put on this gold medal was, God blew and they were scattered. What's that about? It's about the Spanish Armada. You see, the setting in 1588 was that Spain was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. I think last week we talked a little bit about the rise and fall of great nations and uh, alluded to the fact that these great civilizations uh, usually don't make it more than 250 years before they collapse. Well, Spain was the great nation in 1588. They were the big boy on the block. And King Philip II had his eye on England and decided that he was going to take England, invade England, and capture England. So he sent his navy. His navy was called the Invincible Navy. They were the undefeatable navy. They were the Invincible Armada. So he sends a hundred warships up to England to take England out. Now, England at this time was not a big-time nation. Uh, Did they have a navy? Yeah, but nothing, nothing like the Spanish navy. Uh, it, 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 It was a done deal. He sent those ships up there to invade England, and the ships never made it because... Just by chance, a hurricane that should have been following the southern path through the Caribbean, just by chance, this hurricane made its way way north, way north, where you don't have hurricanes. And this devastating hurricane, with its murderous winds, destroyed the invincible Spanish Navy, and that was the end of Spain as a great power and the beginning of England as a world power. And in appreciation for what God had done, there were prayer services all over England. But the great church in London is St. Paul's. And as they had this great celebration of praise to God for his intervention, it was announced that the queen was having a gold metal struck and you can see pictures of it today it it survives with ships in disarray and the motto he blew and they were scattered that's because oh, oh by the way there's nothing on there about mother nature they 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 knew what happened and not only in churches but in every village and in every pub That was the phrase that was on the English people. He blew, and they scattered. And to this day, it's one of the great events in the history of England. You can't study the history of England without studying about the Spanish Armada. God controls everything. George Washington was trapped in Brooklyn. If you've ever been in Brooklyn, you know you don't want to be trapped in Brooklyn. (laughs) 
George Washington was trapped with 9,000 soldiers. And back then, there wasn't the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, they were trapped. Now, this is a couple hundred years later. British Navy, the warships are coming. They're already nearly surrounded. They had, they had to find a way across that river. And the only way they could get across that river was to do something that was virtually impossible. It was to send ships in without any light and to take the men and to take their equipment and to dismantle wagons and make multiple crossings to get these men across to the New York side. Uh, no one could speak. No one could talk. No one could light a match. And all throughout the night, they made their way through the British lines by stealth and didn't say a word, never lit a match. And they would take boatload over, boatload over, boatload over, boatload over. And then the first rays of dawn began to shoot across the horizon and there was no way they were going to get all these guys across. And then suddenly, this heavy pea soup fog descended and you couldn't see six feet in front of your face it just it just came down and so now the darkness was gone but the fog was there and because the fog was there they were able to get every single soldier across that mile wide stretch of the river to the New York side and no sooner had they got the last guy to the New York side and just by chance, the fog lifted. And the British soldiers were amazed because they heard voices behind them. And they turned, and there was the Continental Army waving at them from the other side. And they were utterly astonished. It's interesting how God works. In 1588, God blew and they were scattered. In 1776, God blew, and the fog descended. And in all the churches in the colonies, they were giving praise to Mother Nature. No, they were giving praise to God, who is in control of everything. Now, we love those stories. But as we said last week, before you can have a story like that, you've got to have a crisis. Now, let's take a look at Exodus 14. By now, you know the story. And if you've not been here, you still know the story. Because everybody knows the Red Sea story. Uh, we'll, we'll just simply say this. There was great optimism as they were camped at the Red Sea. We need to stress that again. There was great optimism... For the first time in 400 years, these people were going to be free. For the first time in 400 years, they had a future. They had a hope. Their kids weren't going to be slaves like they were slaves. And grandpa was a slave and great-grandpa. This was a truly momentous event. God had set them free. And they're going to go into the promised land. And as we've pointed out, God didn't take them the shortest route. God didn't take them the most direct route. He took them south and to the east in kind of a crazy route, but they were okay with it because they were in such high spirits. They had plundered the Egyptians. 
They had fabulous wealth for the first time in their lives because the Egyptians had given them all of their gold and silver and precious jewels just to get them out. So that's the setting. So there's, there's, there's great optimism, there's great hope. Uh, they, they, they got something to look forward to now for the first time in about 400 years. You ever been there? You, you just had a series of setbacks and a series of defeats, and then all of a sudden, man, prayer is answered and life is good and things are falling into place and you got hope. And then here's what happens. Verse 10 of Exodus chapter 14. As Pharaoh drew near with his 600 chariots, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened, of course. Because now, now here's the deal. Why did they become frightened? Not because Pharaoh was going to come and wipe them out and murder them. That's not why they were frightened. Because Pharaoh wasn't coming to murder them. Pharaoh was coming to take them back. Because what he realized was, wait a minute, I let these people go. Two million of them, including the kids. I let these people go. What the heck was I thinking about? Because these people are the economic engine of our whole nation. Interesting how money always plays into it, doesn't it? I can't let the, how, how are we going to keep, how are we going to have the production? How are we going to, we got to go get those people and bring them back. So they were greatly afraid. I mean, they looked behind them. Here's Pharaoh's army. Red Sea in front of them, surrounded by mouth. No escape, no way out. They're not afraid for their lives. They're afraid all of our hopes and dreams are dashed, and we're going back to be slaves, and our kids are going to be slaves, and our grandkids, and we're going to do this another 400 years. That's what caused them to be so afraid and so frightened. Their dreams were dashed. That's what happened when crisis comes into our lives. Suddenly, everything you'd planned on, everything you would hope for, it's over, it's finished. Now, look at uh, verse 13 of Exodus 14. So these people are panicked. These people are afraid. These people are scared. You've been there before in crisis that was unforeseen and unplanned. When you get a a phone call you don't want to get. Now, Now, catch this. These people are fearful off the charts. They're scared. They're, look at this. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. That's an interesting thing to say. Because every piece of evidence would indicate you've got a real good reason to fear. Right? You ever deal with worry? You ever deal with anxiety? And then someone will say to you, well, you know, 90% of what we worry about never happens. You ever heard that one? That never helps me. (laughs) Does that help you? Doesn't help me at all. Doesn't help you. I don't know anybody that helps. Because what we all think, yeah, but I'm the guy that's in the 10%. See, I might, it might be that 99% of what we worry about never happens. Hey, but let me tell you, I'm on a streak in the way my life's going. I'm the one guy out of 100. See, if it can happen to anybody, it's going to happen to me. So there's, that, that, that doesn't help you at all when it comes to worry. It doesn't help you at all when it comes to anxiety. Because you see, there are times when we find ourselves in crisis. It might be a family crisis, it might be a uh, financial crisis, whatever it might be. And what you do is, you look around at the facts. At the facts of the situation. And the fact of the matter, what was it that great uh, 
man of mercy and sympathy, Joe Friday, used to say. Some of you guys, you're too young. You don't know about Joe Friday. (laughs) Joe Friday was the original guy in Dragnet. And uh, he was sort of the Mother Teresa of the police force in L.A. This guy had about as much empathy as a piece of uh, granite. And there would be a horrific crime, and there's a woman sobbing uncontrollably, and he's trying to find out what happened. And with absolutely a straight poker face, no empathy, no compassion, no concern, her whole life has fallen apart. He'd look her in the eye and say, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. I don't need tears. I don't need emotion. I just need facts. Well, there are times in life when we're in a crisis, and when you just look at the facts, you got a pretty darn good reason to be fearful. Because all of the facts indicated you're in deep yogurt. You got the Red Sea in front of you. You got the army behind you. You got There's no way out of this deal. So it's interesting, and that's where they were. And it's interesting that Moses says, what's he say? Do not fear. What do you mean, do not fear? Give me a good reason why I shouldn't fear. Well, you know what? He's going to give them a good reason why they shouldn't fear. Interesting, isn't it, how often in the Scripture we see the phrase, fear not. That's everywhere in the Bible. Fear not. Well, there's all these reasons. Look, there's this fact and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, hey, hey, hey. Fear not. Well, why shouldn't I fear? Here's what he says. Stand by. Here's why you shouldn't fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Now, we looked at verse 10 a couple weeks ago about the importance of crying out to God. But now God says, why are you crying out to me? I've heard your cry. And then note what he says. He says, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Let me say this to you guys. When you find yourself in a crisis, when you find yourself in events that you did not foresee and that are very threatening and very fearful, the question is, well, what should I do? Well, number one, you should cry out to God. That's the thing that makes sense. But once you've cried out to God, you say, well, then what do I do? You do the logical and clear thing that you know you should do. In other words, the last thing that God has led you to do, keep doing it. And that would include, you cry out to God, you're in a crisis. Can I say this to you? The logical and clear thing to do is be obedient to God. You're in a crisis and you cry out to God, Don't get into some sin. Don't continue in some sin. Because that that makes absolutely no sense. 
when there's crisis in your life, you cry out to God, but you've got to be willing in your life to say, Lord, you're first, and I'm going to do what you want me to do in every area of my life. I think it was Norman Vincent Peale who told the story about, um, he told the story about his father, and he was going to ask his father for a favor as soon as his father got home. But it was going to be a while before his father got home. So Norman Vincent Peale was like 12 years old. And as he was walking home from school, he found a big cigar. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to smoke this thing. So he goes home and he goes behind the barn and he lights up this stogie. Uh, He was safe. Nobody was around. His dad wouldn't be home for a couple hours. And he's back behind the barn puffing on this stogie. And he hears footsteps, and he turns around, and here comes his dad. And he takes that stogie and puts it behind his back. And his father says, "Uh, didn't you want to talk with me? He goes, oh, yeah, Dad, I did want to talk with you. Well, what was it about, son? Well, Dad, I was wondering if it'd be okay with you if you would let me go do this. And whatever the situation was, he was asking his dad for a favor. And his dad looked at him and he said, you know, son, it's never wise to ask for a favor when you're hiding a smoldering disobedience. (laughs) That's a great line. And that applies to us. If you're in a crisis and you're crying out to God, make sure that you're not hiding a smoldering disobedience. Make sure you're willing to obey. So what happens here? What what happens here? Moses says, don't fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Uh, Hey, we're men, and you know what? We want to achieve and we want to accomplish in life. That's important to us. And and there's a part of that that's, that's important we are to uh, provide for our families. We're to protect our families. We are to lead our families. We're to be examples. And, and so as we go through life, we want to accomplish certain things. And, and, and there's a healthy kind of sense of accomplishment. Uh, this is why we want, uh, uh, we want our sons uh, in particular, and, and our daughters, but particular our sons. We want them to learn how to work and develop a work ethic because there, there is something to be said for doing a job and doing it right and accomplishing it. Uh, there are things in life that uh, remind us of our accomplishments. A, a college diploma is a good reminder of an accomplishment. That's all well and good. There are different things we get as we go through life that signify we accomplish certain things. Sometimes, though, we get so focused in on accomplishments that we forget about why it is we're able to accomplish what we're able to accomplish. It it always cracks me up when I meet a guy and he indicates, maybe not in words, but you get the sense that he's a self-made man. Now, I, I I know what we mean by that. Started out with nothing and worked hard and put in a lot of years and paid the dues and, you know. But a lot of guys take pride in their accomplishments. You know, the scripture kind of deflates that stuff. 
You've done well financially? Well, Deuteronomy 8.18 said it is he who has given you the power to make wealth. I know you worked hard. Sure you worked hard. But, but, hey, you know what? He gave you the physical strength so that you could even work hard. You know, there are some people physically that literally can't get out of bed by themselves. That's not your situation. See, he gave you the health so that you could work hard. Yeah, you worked hard, but he gave you the health so that you could work hard. He gave you the mind so that you could think. He gave you the ability so that you could work with people. You see, whatever it is that we have, it's been given to us by the Lord. So there's really not a whole lot of room for pride in what we've done and what we've accomplished. You know, sometimes we look at other people and we look at their accomplishments and we think they're so brilliant and, and we think they're so far ahead of us and we think that they are so superior to us. Thomas Morris has written a book called Making Sense of It All. Uh, it's a book about Blaise Pascal. Uh, he was the man who said that within every man is a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. But in talking about Pascal in his writings, he tells a story because he is a university professor. He's going to tell two stories. He says, I've been told by the friend of a friend of a great mathematician. That didn't come out right. Oh, yeah, here we go. Okay. I've been told by the friend of a friend of a great mathematician, that this genius, this mathematical protege, was so brilliant that he couldn't remember where he lived. Now think about this. You see somebody like this, a giant brain, just incredibly gifted, and sometimes you can look at people like that and say, my gosh, their accomplishments, I mean, what? It's just amazing. Now listen to this guy. This guy could not remember where he lived, although his house was only a short distance from the campus of the university where he works. The story, sworn to be true, is that this man must count each day the number of streets away from campus and the number of houses down the street on the right as he walks home. Three streets down, take a right, 12 houses on the right. That's how he gets home every day. One day I'm told as he was walking home, he was deep in thought about a mathematical problem, and he lost count. Utterly confused and totally lost, this brilliant mathematician saw a little boy playing at the side of the road. He called out to the young boy, young man, can you tell me where the mathematics professor lives? The little boy looked up and said, what is wrong with you, daddy? This guy had a lot of accomplishment, but it's not as impressive as it first looks to be. He says one more story. Another mathematician, this time the great Hungarian Eugene Wigner. I am told that Wigner was visiting one of our more prominent universities, and there was a graduate student in mathematics who very much wanted to meet him. He was so impressed with the great professor and his writings and his accomplishments. But every time he saw the great Wigner in the math building, he lost his nerve. Why be so presumptuous as to disturb the great man when he may be occupied with some deep and important thought? One day, however, the young student saw Professor Wigner at the local post office. Uh, this was neutral ground. The great man could finally be approached. Summoning up his courage, the graduate student began to walk across the room, rehearsing how he would introduce himself to his idol. Halfway there, though, he slowed his pace and stopped, Wigner was grimacing, and his brow was furrowed, and 
he was beginning to slap himself on the forehead with the palm of his hand while holding an envelope in his left hand. He began to pace quickly back and forth in the post office, apparently in, in tortured thought. Uh, important theorems have been proved to be born on the backs of envelopes, the young student thought. Perhaps a new proof was about to be born or a whole realm of mathematics revolutionized. The grad student did not dare interrupt him until he saw the professor become more and more desperate looking. Suddenly the student forgot himself and blurted out, may I be of assistance, Professor Wigner? At that the genius looked up, startled, and said, oh yes, Wigner. Wigner. (laughs) And scribbled his name on the upper left corner of his envelope and dropped it in the outgoing mail slot. A man of great accomplishment. Couldn't even remember his own name. Now, most of the time we can remember our name, and there are some things that we can do. But every once in a while, God interrupts our lives with an event to really show us an accomplishment. Did you, did you notice that verse, verse 13? Moses says, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. Now watch this which he will accomplish for you today. One of the things we've been saying over and over again as we've been going through this Red Sea thing is that the reason that God leads us in the crisis and and the reason they were at the Red Sea is that God led them to the Red Sea. And the reason you're in the crisis that you're in, believe it or not, is that God has led you to the crisis. You say, but Steve, my, my, someone has sinned in my crisis. God still led you. Because God is sovereign over everything. God's not shocked that you are where you are. God is not stunned. God is not baffled. How, how did, was that the plan? Was that what we were going to do? He never says that. We say that. He never says it. God leads us into these situations. And and you say, I can't conceive of how he can do that. Well, I can't either, but that's what he does. Because he's in charge of everything in our lives. Uh, He led them into this situation because he was about to show them his greatness. And he was going to show them his power. And when you read this Exodus 14 story all the way through you see that one of the purposes that God led them in the crisis was that God might be honored. We looked at this before. Look at chapter 14. Look at verse 4. God says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. He will chase after them. I will be honored through Pharaoh. Why? Because they're in this crisis. There's no escape. I'm going to make a way of escape, and I'm going to be honored. Look at, uh, look at uh, verse 17. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored. Verse 18, then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored. God puts us in these crises, and and, and our fear level is off the charts, and our hearts are are, are racing, and what God is going to do is, God is going to make a way, and God is going to be honored. Now, when I see this word in verse 13, Don't fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. When I see that word accomplish, I immediately think of Psalm 57. And I think we referred to it last week. 
Uh, would you flip over to Psalm 57 with me? We, we've said it before in here, guys. God works providentially, but God also works strangely. That's how God works in our lives. In Psalm 57, verse 2, here's what we read. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. Same word that's back in Exodus 14. Moses says, don't fear, stand by and see what the Lord will accomplish for you today. You know, the American church, generally speaking, is pretty sick and pretty weak. Not all churches, but some. Why would you say that? I am amazed at the churches that we have in America. Big churches, impressive churches, huge budgets, huge buildings, massive crowds of people that come to churches that really do not declare the truth of the Scriptures. That amazes me. Absolutely amazes me. And the reason that amazes me is because What are they doing if they're not declaring truth? What are they doing if they're not laying out the facts about who God is? Here's why it's so important to teach the Scriptures. The reason it's so important to teach the Scriptures is that when life falls apart, what you believe about God is going to be critical to how you weather the crisis. There's an old hymn. You guys ever listen to Jay Vernon McGee on the radio? Yeah. He's quite a guy. He was, he was pastor at Church of the Open Door. And uh, what Dr. McGee would do is that he'd preach through the whole Bible every five years. And he was doing this when he was in his 70s, and I think up into his 80s. And when he got up into his 80s, somebody got the idea, hey, you know what, we ought to record this. And then after Dr. McGee is with the Lord, we can still play this on the radio, and they still play it. And he'll take you through the Bible in five years. Uh, They always open the program with the same hymn. How firm a foundation. Now, I want to read this hymn to you. Because this is a hymn that was written back when they put theology in hymns. And they don't talk a lot about how they feel. They talk about what's true. This is not an Oprah hymn. This is a God hymn. All right, now listen to this. Now, now I want you to think about this. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? Now stop and think about that. What more can he say than to you he has said? Well, the answer is nothing. Because he said it all right here. 
But if you don't know what's in here, you don't know what he said. And you know what's interesting to me? Every time I turn on Christian television, there's some yo-yo on there with weird hair saying the Lord told him something. And he's not quoting out of the Bible. Well, you know, I just got a word from the Lord. Really? And they, I mean, it's just amazing. And it's just carte blanche. I mean, you get an impulse and you get a word from the Lord and that trumps everything. I, I, mean, I mean, I look around and I see guys that teach the Bible. Pretty solid history of teaching the Bible. But got some real issues in their marriage. And it's to such a point that they make a statement publicly in their church saying, if I ever get divorced, I'll leave this church. And then they got divorced, and they didn't leave the church. And guess why they didn't leave the church? Because the Lord told me not to leave. And this guy's not even a charismatic. But man, he sure got charismatic when he got in the lurch. Because you see, that'd be kind of hard to do. But see, when you get a word from the Lord, man, that's the great escape clause. You don't even need an attorney when you get a word from the Lord. But, but see, this says it. I'm not, and guys, please understand, I'm not saying that God doesn't lead us. I'm not saying that God isn't active. I, I believe God speaks today. I believe that. But I believe God speaks through his scriptures. I, 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 that's why you've got to be in the scripture. When I'm in a difficult situation, when I'm in under pressure, you know what I do? I open up my Bible and I say, Lord, I need to hear from you. And it's amazing how he speaks to us through his word. What more can he say than to you he has said? But when we've got evangelicals, they don't even know what he has said. And when the bottom drops out, how are you going to get any comfort? How are you going to get any endurance? How are you going to have anything to stand on? You don't have a foundation. Does this make sense? This is why we study the Bible around here. You don't study the Bible, you don't have a foundation. A lot of truth. Well, you got experience. You can't live off experience. You can only live off of truth. Now, you get, experience is legitimate. But what did Jesus say in John 8, 31? Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now, catch this. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Being made free is an experience, is it not? Well, where do you get the experience? From being in the word of God. Now listen, he says, what more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. When you're, fle when, you're, when you're calling on the name of the Lord, Jesus help me, Jesus encourage me, you open up his word. Then the next verse says, fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed. I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. That's theology. Most Christians, they go, I'm the what? I'm the what? There's an Omni Hotel down there at 635. No, omnipotent. What does that mean? That means he's, he's got all power. That's what it means. The God we serve has all power. If you don't know, if you don't know who God is, listen. Our God is all-powerful. 
Our God is all-wise. Our God is all-knowing. Our, our God is self-existent. What does that mean? It means he's always been. When you were a kid, did you ever wonder where God came from? You probably still wonder about it now. That's a mind-blower. I remember asking my dad, I was just looking, hey, so daddy, where did God come from? Well, son, he's always been. But where did he come from? And then in my mind, I'd go as back far as I could, and I'd go back as far in time as I could, but, but he had to come from somewhere. No, he, no, he's always been. Well, how can you always be? Well, he's God. That's one of the cardinal doctrines of the theology of God. It's called the aseity of God, A-S-I-A-S-E-I-T-Y, the self-existence of God. And see, here's the deal. When you've got a God that's all-powerful, you've got a God that's all-wise, you've got a God that's all-knowing, you've got a God that is good and does good, Psalm 1968, you've got a God who has existed without being created, that's a God. And see, when you're in crisis, you know what happens when you're in crisis? All of a sudden, and you get your wheels knocked out from under you, and all of a sudden, you, you start thinking, all right, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on, I've got to fight this fear off. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You've got to start thinking, who is my God? Who is he? Who is he? I got an email from a guy last week. I've gotten some great emails. And the gentleman was telling me about his father. Uh, I'm doing off the, this off the top of my head. I, I think there was a, a, a sudden situation where his dad's, was, his heart stopped and they took him to the hospital. He wasn't sure he was going to make it. They weren't sure. And he was this, this gentleman who attends our study was down in Houston with his mother. And as they're in this crisis, and his dad's in the intensive care unit, he's talking to his mom, and he said to his mom, you know, mom, we're not here by chance. And this crisis isn't by accident. God's led us here. Just like he led him to the Red Sea. And he and his mom are talking as his father's in the ICU. And, and you know what it did? As he started thinking biblically, about the crisis, it just called me anxiety level down. And you know what they did at the Red Sea? Well, they cried out to God. And if I'm not mistaken, that crisis situation, as they thought it through biblically about who God is, they cried out to this great God. His dad's back home now. We're not even sure he's going to live through the, through the night. See, all I'm saying is, guys, what you believe about God is critical when you're in a crisis. What you believe about God helps you to control and manage fear. Now, if you've got a wrong view of God, hey, you know, let me tell you something. You're French toast, man. You've got nothing to stand with. You see? You have got to know who God is, and you know who God is from being in the Word of God. Does this make sense? He's your foundation. Uh, here's the next line. When through the deep waters, I call you to go. There's some theology. It doesn't say, when through deep waters, you happen to find yourself in. Right? When through deep waters, I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. 
The worst things we ever go through, God will turn to our good. I don't have time to go through the rest of this, but I'll do the last line. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose or comfort. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, never, no, never forsake. That's truth. That's foundational about who our God is. Does that help in crisis? I guarantee it helps in crisis. So what does that have to do with this Psalm 57 thing? Well, here's what it says. Psalm 57, 2. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes, same word, all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. So when you're in crisis, know this. Know this. I'm going to cry to God when I'm in crisis. He's the God who accomplishes all things for me. See, I'll cry to God, to God most high. So see, when you're in crisis, you go, who is my God? You guys know the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer? Let's say it together. Our Father, art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Jesus said about that prayer, Jesus said, when you pray, Jesus didn't say if you pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Now, that's a great prayer, and you can pray that prayer. It's, it's, just, it's just rich. It's full. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English preacher, once said this about the Lord's Prayer. He said, in that prayer, you can... Well, how's that prayer start? Our Father. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you can say our Father and stop right there, and you're, you're going to be okay. Huh? What, do you say? what do you mean? Well, if you just say, our Father, and stop, that's not a bad thing to do. Not if you think about who your Father is. See, you're in Christ, you I cry to God most high. Our Father. Well, let me ask you something. Who is your Father? Who is He? Well, he's the God that created the world with a word. He's the God that sustains the world. He's a God that controls everything and everyone. He's a God that has a purpose for history. He's a God that has a purpose for my life. He's a God that has a plan for the ages, including everything that happens to me. He, the reason I'm in this crisis is that God put me in the crisis. He's led me to the crisis. You see, that's my Father. And He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He says, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. See, that's my father. But if you don't know who your father is, you're in trouble. See how important this is? I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. I think we said last week it can be rendered this way. I will call to God most high, to God who is the transactor of my affairs. He will send from heaven and help me. If you look up that word accomplish in the Hebrew lexicon, you know, words can have different nuances. That word accomplish. And if you just look up the Hebrew lexicon in Strong's Concordance, they're going to give you that word, that Hebrew word, and the different nuances of that word and how many times that word is used throughout the Bible. And just real quickly, let me give you the nuances of this word. I cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes What did he say at the Red Sea? Don't fear, stand back and watch what the Lord will accomplish. 
Are you in crisis? Are you in crisis? All right, what do you need to do? You need to call to God Most High who accomplishes. Here are just a few of the ideas in that word. It can mean accomplish. It can mean accomplish much. It can mean administered. I will call to God who administers all my affairs. I will call to God who bears all of my affairs. I will call upon God who brings forth all of my affairs. I will call to God who has brought about all my affairs. How did I get here? He brought it about. Now, if it's sin, he's not responsible for the sin, but he uses sin. Uh, I will call out to God who carries out my affairs. Now, I got two pages of stuff here, and I don't have time to go through this. But I'm saying, guys, this is all about the provision of God when we get into crisis. He takes care of us. He's going to be honored through the crisis. He's going to show us his greatness. Uh, where's, my, where's my Thomas Watson thing? Listen to what Thomas Watson said 300 years ago. He says, see here the wisdom of God who can make, now catch this, see here the wisdom of God who can make the worst things imaginable turn to the good of the saints. Was the Red Sea the worst thing imaginable for them? Yeah. And what did he do? He turned to the good of the saints. Then he says this, God enriches by impoverishing. You could chew on that for six months. Did you get that? God enriches by impoverishing. You don't hear that too often on Christian television. I saw some guy this week trying to get you to sow the seed of your house payment to his ministry. Whatever your house payment is this month. He said, I've never done this before. I've never heard anybody doing it. You sow your house payment into and then the whole thing was God to pay your house off. Now, give and it shall be given unto you. That's in the scriptures. But, but listen, God enriches by impoverishing. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Jesus talked about bearing fruit in John 15. He says, every branch that bears fruit, I cut back that it may bear more fruit. And when he cuts you back, you find yourself in crisis. And you don't want to be there. But, so why is he doing it? Because he's going to have you bear more fruit. Watson says, God works strangely. He brings order out of confusion, harmony out of discord. God often helps when there is least hope and saves his people in that way which they think will destroy there's great wisdom there. I told you last week about the time I was asked to leave the church. That wasn't a true story. I just made it up. It was a pretty good story. <laughs> Actually, that was a true story. Um, this is working, I've been working on this Red Sea stuff. And what I do is I look back. When I'm facing crisis, one of the things you do is you look back. And you look, so wait a minute, have I ever been in a crisis before? Yeah. And then I start thinking through my crises. It's just real simple stuff. I just start thinking through my crises and reminding myself of where I was and that there was no way out. And then God made a way. 
know what that does? That builds my faith for the crisis I'm in right now. When, uh, when, I, when I left that church, I, I, the idea was I was going to set up a ministry and do conferences. And I remember when we were driving down here to move here. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm married to a gal who has a lot of wisdom. And she's a great partner. And she sees things usually, I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you this. She, she usually sees it before I see it. I, I kind of outmarried myself. And to you young guys that aren't married, how many of you guys outmarried yourself? Let me see your hands. Yeah. See, once again, that's my motto. God is good to dumb guys. <laughs> if you know you're an idiot and you say, God, I'm an idiot, give me what I need. Well, that's what he does. So we're coming down here. My idea is, right, because I was doing a lot of marriage conferences with Dennis Rainey and all this, and I thought, well, I'm, I'll do, you know, I'll take these other conferences, and that's what I'll do, and I'll write books. We're coming down here, and Mary said, she said, you know, Steve, I think you ought to focus on men. I said, on men? I said, nobody focuses on men. This is two years before Promise Keepers. I said, nobody does men's conferences. I mean, you know, you have a pancake breakfast on Saturday morning. <laughs> that's it. She said, well, that's your hardest for men. I said, well, I know. And she said, that book's coming out. It's for men. I said, yeah, I know. But I said, nobody does it. Can't. I mean, I really thought it was laughable. And so I'm doing all these other marriage cards, doing all this stuff, you know. And about a year and a half later, so we're down here, we're moved in. About a year and a half later, Andy McQuitty, who's the pastor over at Irving Bible Church. And this was Irving Bible Church. It was a little tiny church over on Finley Road. He said, Steve, I read that book, Point Man, you did. And I said, oh, good. And he goes, hey, you know what? He said, you do any conferences off that book? And I said, no, I don't, I don't do that. He said, why don't you do that? Because well, I'm an idiot. That's, that's why. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> he said, we ought to get some guys together, and you do a men's conference. He said, well, you do, if I get some guys together, will you do it? And I go, yeah. So we set a date, and he gets 120 guys there. So I do this conference, and I do my stuff. And at the end of the day, about 120 guys. And as soon as it was over, this guy comes up to me and he introduced himself. He says, Steve, my name's Tom Miller. I'm assistant football coach at TCU. This is 1991. And uh, he said, I got four guys here from my church. I said, where do you go to church? And he goes, uh, in Fort Worth at St. Paul's Lutheran. I didn't even know there were Lutherans in Texas. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, that's good. He said, hey, I'd like to do a conference like this. He said, I, I'd like to do it at our church. And I'm going, Lutheran Church, Fort Worth? What are we going to have, 16 guys? You know? I, I don't know. I mean, Luther, I don't know. I'm just being honest with you. That was my initial thought. I was, I was nice, but that's what I'm thinking. And he said, would you be willing to do that? And I said, well, I'd be willing to talk with you. He said, I'll call you. I said, okay. So the guy calls me. And we're going over this. He said, I, I think we could do this. He said, I'd like to meet with one of your staff people. I said, what do you mean staff? I don't have a staff. <laughs> I mean, it's just me. I mean, I've had a staff infection, but I don't have staff. <laughs> He said, all right, well, you mind if I get to work on it? I said, no. So he said, well, all right, let me, let me see what I can work out. And, and uh, he said, I think we can fill auditorium. We can seat 600 guys. Now, this is before Promise Keepers. And I'm thinking, this guy is out of his ever-loving, cotton-picking mind. But he's a sharp guy. I mean, he's no, he's no dummy. Very sharp individual. So, you know, fine, you know, get back to me. And so we set a date out like six months. Well, you know, six, seven, eight weeks later, we're out in California visiting my folks. 
And I get a call. My mom said, there's a guy named Tom Miller on the phone. I said, yeah, I'm standing in the garage at my folks' place. Actually, no, no, it was, I had hired a gal part-time. She said, Dee Dee's on the phone. I said, I take it. So I'm, I said, Dee Dee, what's going on? She said, Tom Miller called. And I said, yeah, he wanted me to tell you <clears throat> that he didn't think their church was big enough to handle the conference, so he rented the Will Rogers Auditorium. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe it. I said, he, he, he rented the Will I said, how many does that thing seat? She said, 1,800. <clears throat> I said, 1,800. Now remember, promise keepers hadn't happened yet. I said, 1,800. Well, he said he'd pay for it. I guarantee you he's paying for it. <laughs> I'm not paying for that to get 40 guys in Will Rogers Auditorium. <laughs> So the weekend comes, I drive over to Will Rogers Auditorium, and I can't find a parking place. I'll never forget this as long as I live. I walked in there. There's 1,700 guys in there. I was stunned. I'll, I'll never forget that as long as I live. And, and you see, I didn't have enough faith to do mint. Oh, and by the way, then the next weekend, Jack Graham had called, and we did a deal over there. It was kind of disappointing. We only had 1,200 guys at Prestonwood. It was a little discouraging. <laughs> and then the next week, I go to Arkansas, and they got 1,200 guys up there. And all of a sudden, we were on our way. And I was shocked. I mean, I was stunned. And then I had to hire some people. And a couple years went by, and I had like eight people setting up these conferences every weekend and now here's what happened uh, we had to work these conferences and set them up and you know do the advanced stuff and all that well I'm not good at that I, I speak and I write and I study and that's what I do but I was having to administrate a staff of eight and you know we do this and we do and it was just, it was killing me it was killing me and it was pulling me apart and I couldn't do my study and I couldn't write and I was fragmented. I'm not good at that. I wasn't working in an area of strength. And I was getting so frazzled. And one night, one night, I get into bed, and I was just distraught. I was so stressed out. I mean, I, I can't tell you how stressed I was. And, and, and Mary said, you're not doing well, are you? And I go, no. I said, Mary, I can't keep doing this. She said, well, you're right. You can't. And she said, you know, Steve, you need a guy that's a world-class guy. You need like a Fortune 500 guy. And I, I said, well, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great, but uh, that's not going to happen. She said, well, she may, maybe God will give you a guy like that. And I said, well, you know, Mary, I got eight guys. I mean, I don't need a 500, Fortune 500 guy. She said, no, I think you need somebody that competent and that capable just to take it off your shoulders. I said, and I was getting a little upset. I said, well, you know, guys like that just don't grow on trees. She said, no, but God can... See, I hate it when she sees it before I do. <laughs> really, it really kind of hacks me off. And, and we're talking, and she said, hey, you know what you ought to do? You ought to call Dean Gage. I said, I'm not calling Dean Gage. I said, I'm not going to embarrass myself. Dean had just retired as president and provost of Texas A&M University. 
And he'd been retired for a couple years, and he'd had me down to do some conferences, and we'd developed a friendship, and he had a great heart for God, and he was a discipler of men. She said, Steve, you ought to challenge Dean to come on board and run the ministry for you. I said, Mary, he had 20,000 people working for him. What am I going to do? Hey, Dean, why don't you come and handle these eight people for me? <laughs> she said, Steve, I think you ought to talk to him. I said, well, by the way, he called, and he's going to be in town. We're supposed to have lunch with him next week. So we have lunch. And Mary's with me, and we're just talking, you know, and getting... And, and Dean, he, he talks about this, you know, men's deal, and he's working with these guys and these college guys, he's discipling. That's his whole life. Great guy, great servant. And we're talking, you know, and... And at one point I said, you know, Dean, uh, man, I'll tell you what, I've never seen anybody who's got a heart for men like you do. I said, wouldn't it be something if down the road maybe God would put us together and we could work together? And he immediately dropped his head. And he couldn't speak. And I thought, man, I really offended this guy. <laughs> and then I saw his eyes begin to moisten up. It took him maybe 30 seconds. And he looked up and he said, are, are you asking if I'd be interested in working with you in your ministry? And I said, well, I mean, down the road, maybe. He said, Steve, I've been praying for 10 months that you'd approach me. Ten months. I said, Dean, why didn't you just tell me? He said, I wanted to make sure it was from the Lord. And I asked him to put it on your heart. I said, I'm not bright enough, so he put it on Mary's heart. <laughs> and for the next five years, we worked together. And here's this guy. You talk about a servant. Man, did he ever take a load off me. I saw no way. Maybe that's where you are. God loves to make a way. He's the God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. Let's pray. We believe this, Lord. We believe it. Now, help us to put it into practice. Would you help us to do that? There are guys in here that have been praying for a while and, and they haven't gotten an answer yet. And they have to be wondering, well, why haven't I got a response? And the answer to that would be that when your timing is perfect, they'll get a response that will awe them. So help us to wait and trust and know that you will make a way in your time and we will honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.